0: For the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we ask for clarity here. We ask for understanding. And we also ask for conviction. It never feels good, but it is always good for us. So, Father, help us to hear your word today in a way where we're not just hearing with our minds and with our ears, but with our hearts. We'll give you all the praise for it. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to good health, one of our greatest obstacles to good health is to admit when we have a problem. And when it comes to admitting that there may be a problem or is, scientists have found something we already knew, which was that men, specifically macho men or guys who think they're tough, are much more likely to die early. Why? Well, it's because they refuse to admit that there's a problem. They refuse to admit that there's anything wrong. See, going to the doctor, that's for wimps. Tough guys don't go to the doctor. What do tough guys do? They rub some dirt on it. They put on a stiff upper lip. They walk it off like a man does, right? But because these macho men refuse to admit that there's a problem at all with their health, or even that there might be a problem, scientists have found that these macho men are expected to die on average five years earlier than women. Professor of psychology, Diana Sanchez of Rutgers University, she conducted a study on this, and she found the reason for it, and it's that macho men act this way because they're following a cultural script that tells them that they need to be brave, they need to be strong, right? They need to be self-reliant and tough. They need to be a real man. And because of this, not only are these real men much more likely to die, but part of it is because they are much less likely to go to the doctor at all. And the studies found that even when they finally would go to the doctor, they wouldn't be straight up and honest about their potential symptoms and problems. They would downplay it. They would try to act like, oh yeah, maybe I've got this thing, you know, but it's, it's no big deal, doctor. Yeah, we're, we're fine, right? You know, that sort of thing. Because they wanted to act tough. They wanted to downplay things and act like there was no big deal. But because they did this, as the results show, their issue wasn't taken seriously and it wasn't treated seriously. However, they also found that women don't follow this cultural script, unless you're a nurse. I think nurses do follow this. But women don't follow this cultural script. Women don't think that it's Wimpy or unwomanlike to make a fuss about potential health problems. They're much more straightforward about it. They're honest about it. They deal with it head on. And because these women take their problems seriously, they address them earlier and right away. It leads to better health, which results in a much longer life. You know, church, I bring this up for a reason, and it's because when it comes to doubt, How many of us have tried to suppress our doubt and act like it's not there? Everybody, right? We do that. Why? Because we want to act like we're spiritual tough guys, like we're spiritual macho men. Like, no, we don't doubt. My faith is so strong. You don't understand. I would never doubt. We think like that. Sometimes we think it's wrong to doubt, that it's sin to doubt. And so we suppress it, we ignore it, and hope that it will just go away. But it won't just go away, because the fact is, doubt left untreated is absolutely spiritually disastrous for us. Unlike other religions, Christianity is not a macho man religion. It doesn't say to just suppress and ignore your doubt. Other religions are macho man religions. For, ex- for example, when I was in the Twin Cities, I worked with a bunch of Muslims, and we would get talking a lot of times about faith and the reasons for you know, Christ being God and who he said he was and why I thought Christianity was right and why I thought Allah was wrong. And sometimes I would pose to them these arguments where I could see this kind of look of panic in their face because they didn't know the answer to it. But they would quickly brush it off and say, oh, you'd have to come come down to the mosque and talk to our spiritual leader there. Yeah, he he could answer that for you. Like, how about you answer that for me? Don't you worry about this? And the reason, and they kind of did, but they suppressed it. Why? Because these macho men religions, what they do is they teach them that it's wrong to doubt. It's a sin to doubt. And if they doubt, what happens in these macho men religions is that they lose their religious tough guy points, and if you lose enough of those, you're out. You're going to hell. And so these other religions will tell you not to embrace doubt, not to wrestle with your doubt. But that's not the case with Christianity, not at all. If you're here today and you're dealing with doubt sometimes, that's okay That's not necessarily, I mean, there's a form of doubt where it becomes unbelief, and that is not okay, but doubt is something we all face, and Christianity absolutely encourages us to wrestle with our doubt, because if we don't, there will be serious spiritual consequences. And so Christianity says to be honest about your doubt, not to ignore your doubt, and the reason is because a faith without doubt is a defenseless faith that is destined for trouble. I like how one pastor puts this. He put it this way. He says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who go blithely through life, too busy, too indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can then collapse almost overnight if she hasn't failed over the years to listen, listen patiently to her own doubts. Church, that's right. And so at this church, at Eagle's Nest, we aren't going to do the macho man thing, right? I don't care how much you want to snap into a Slim Jim, and if you don't know that reference, you're too old or you're too young, but we are going to wrestle with doubt here. Not many people knew that reference that's okay. But we are going to wrestle with our doubt here. We're not going to shun each other, or at least we shouldn't, if they say, hey, you know what? I'm really, I'm really struggling. I'm struggling to believe this about God's word. Was Jesus, is Jesus really the only way, the truth, and the life? Like, I believe that, but sometimes my heart throws up this rebellion against that because it seems so narrow-minded. And so as a church, we're going to wrestle with those questions. Why? Because not only will it make us stronger Christians, but here's the thing too. It will make our gospel witness stronger and more compelling to an unbelieving world. Think about it. If an unbeliever comes to you and says, hey, I got a question. How do you explain Genesis here? Hey, I got a question. How do you explain Jesus being the only way, the truth, and the life? I got a question. How do you explain a worldwide flood? You know, it just starts going through these things, and we're like, I don't know. You just got to (laughs) believe. Just got to trust in Jesus. Take that leap, brother. Is that a very compelling witness? Not at all. Not even a little bit. In fact, I would say that's a shame, because as Christians, we have truth on our side. And all you have to do, as Lewis says, you let the truth out of the cage. It's like a lion. It's going to devour stuff. And that's what we have to learn to do with our doubt. Go and examine it so that we find truth, so that our truth can not only help us be stronger Christians, but help our witness be stronger to an unbelieving world. This morning, we are returning finally to the Gospel of Matthew after having taken about a month and a half break from it. I don't know if I've shared this before, but there was one professor. He said, you should break away from your text and preach a topical message once every seven years, and then promptly repent of it. So, I don't know if that's right, but we're getting back into our verse-by-verse study where we expository go through God's Word to try to unpack it and understand what God wants us to know about Him and how we're supposed to live our lives. So this morning, our passage, we find the issue of doubt, and it's being addressed head-on. Who's doubting here? John the Baptist. That's who's doubting. And what do you know about John the Baptist? Well, he was the very forerunner of Christ. He was the one who was a prophet, the last of the great prophets before Christ who came to pronounce Jesus' arrival. He arrived, he announced Jesus' arrival as King. And not only that, if you remember back in chapter 3, he baptized Jesus. And he was like, no, 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 you need to baptize me. And Jesus is like, You're right. But you don't want this baptism that I would offer yet, because it's a baptism of fire. We'll get to that. But the point is, John was not just some spiritual weakling. Not at all. And why do we know that? Because look at verse 11, and we'll get to this more next week, but what does Jesus say about John the Baptist? He says, of all those born of women, no one is greater than John. That's it, right? And so here's the thing. Think about this. If the greatest man to ever live at times would doubt do you think little old me and little old you are going to doubt sometimes? Absolutely we will. And if you if you're sitting here today and you're like, yeah, not me pastor, I never doubt. Well, then I honestly, I seriously question if you have ever taken Christianity's claims seriously at all. Because Christianity makes some very bold claims, doesn't it? Extremely bold claims. Christianity makes claims that can't be fully substantiated. And sometimes it even makes claims that seem evident to the contrary. And so if we take Christianity seriously, I'm afraid to say we will face times of doubt. If the greatest man who ever lived have doubts, I think we will too. And so because we will too, we must not try to suppress it. We must not try to be macho men who just toughen it up and continue on, rub some dirt in it, and continue on with our spiritual walk. We gotta pause and deal with the scraped knee. We gotta deal with the problem that we have. So if we're going to deal with our doubts properly, we have to recognize the three things that cause doubt to flare up. Anybody here have an allergy to something like peanuts or bees or something? Right? If you have if you get stung by a bee, if you eat the peanut, it's going to cause a major flare up in your aller- in your reaction, right? Sometimes it can be deadly. So too is it with our doubt. There are things if not treated will cause our doubt to flare up and that flare up can get worse and worse and worse where ultimately it can be spiritually devastating. So here it is. Doubts flare up from three things. Wrong experiences, wrong expectations, and wrong treatments. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 11. We're going to look at, read verses 1 and 2 here. In verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on there to teach and to preach in their cities. In verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Look at verse 1 here. It's setting the stage for us. This is a major transition point in Matthew's gospel, and this is setting the stage here for something brand new that Matthew's trying to address. See, in the last chapter, what did Jesus do? He sent out his disciples to share the message of the kingdom. What was the message of the kingdom? Repent. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's here. It's arriving. So you need to be ready for it. And so in verse 1, we find Jesus once again doing the very same things that we saw him doing back in chapters 4 and chapters, five, chapters 9, which actually was the staple of his earthly ministry. And what was that? To teach and preach. We find this popping up over and over now. This is the third time in Matthew's gospel. And as we already discussed last time, those are different things. One is to teach God's word. And this was a thing that began in the synagogue system where they would get up and they would expound God's word. They would go through it in detail. They would unpack it and make it plain and readily understandable to the listeners. And the other is to proclaim it. It's to herald it. It is to pronounce it to the peoples. And so this morning, what are we doing? We're doing a little bit of both. Right? We are doing a little bit of both as we look to God's word to try to understand it better, but also not just understand it better to see our hearts shaped by the truth. Because if you leave here understanding this text with your mind, but it hasn't affected your heart, you have not understood this text. Not even a little bit. All right? So that's the stage. Jesus is preaching and teaching throughout the cities. And while he's doing that, John disciples, he sends John sends his disciples to Jesus. And he wants him to answer a question. He sends them with a question, and here's the question He says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I never realized how remarkable it is that John did that. It is. I know we already talked about this, but this is John the Baptist, right? Who at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's doubting whether Jesus is truly the coming one. We'll get to what that means in a second. But first, why is John doubting here? What's causing his doubt? He's doubting, well, for several reasons, but for starters, and the text implies this, it's because of his circumstances. It's because of his experiences, which are going very wrongly. And why are they going wrongly? He's in jail. That doesn't seem like a good place to be in, does it? He's in jail for preaching and proclaiming the gospel message, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he got into trouble by preaching and proclaiming that to Herod for taking his, I think it's his brother's wife, wrongly and marrying her. And so he gets thrown in jail. And so here is John, the forerunner of the messianic king, right? He's a prophet of God. And this was just, he wasn't no soft-spoken prophet either. This was a pulpit banging, brimstone, fire-preaching, courageous preacher who spoke the truth without fear. He called out sin. He urged people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does all that faithfulness to God give him in the end? A prison cell. And eventually, a chopped-off head. And so what John does is he starts to respond to his suffering and hardship with some doubt. Isn't that the atypical pattern for us? Of course it is. We've talked about this before. The problem of theodicy, the problem of evil and suffering. Okay? If God is good and he's all powerful, he can do whatever he wants, why is there so much pain and suffering? Why is there a Holocaust? Why is there abortion levels to what they are? Why are there so much of this suffering on this planet. See, if evil and suffering exist, then sure, God might be all powerful, but he can't be good because a good God would stop that. Wouldn't you, if you had the capability to stop evil and suffering like that, wouldn't you step in? I would. So certainly, if that's the case with God, then he must not be good. But if God is good, then it's I guess it's possible he's good. But if he is, he's definitely not all powerful because a good God, you know, he would, if he had the power, he would certainly stop it. So it's got to be that God must either not be all good or he must not be all powerful. But there's a problem because what does Christianity say? God is good, all good, and he is all powerful. Why is there so much pain and suffering? And free will is not the perfect explain all answer for that. It's just not. And so because of the existence of evil and suffering, because of bad and wrong experiences, so often, like Job did in the book of Job, we experience these difficult circumstances and it leads us to doubt. God, where are you at? God, do you even care? What are you doing? Like, be honest here. Who here hasn't doubted God's plan before? Who's ever looked at their life and thought, man, this is a dumpster fire. God, what are you doing? Put this thing out, would you? Who's ever looked at the state of the Christian church and got dismayed and got discouraged because it seems like it's a sinful mess that you're dealing with just one after the other? I know one pastor who sometimes feels that way. And what makes matters even worse is that pastor who feels this way often feels this way because his messes, the messes that are being dealt with are self-inflicted, right? It's not like I'm up in an ivory tower, like, would you all get it together? It's like, <laughs> I wish we all could get it together, right? And that causes doubt. Here's the thing. Right now, like, look around. We are in a country where the past two years have really shaken things up, haven't it? Hasn't it? There we go. Proper grammar. Hasn't it? We are in a country that seems hell bent on embracing everything and anything that is totally antithetical to God, who He is, and what He stands for. But you know what? Here's the thing. In the midst of these moments, if we're honest, our hearts do cry out, as Job's did God, where are you? Everything is falling apart. Doesn't our hearts cry that sometimes? It absolutely does. But as our brother Ken over here recently said, he put it this way. He said, in the midst of those moments, we must remind ourselves not that everything is falling apart, but that it's falling together, exactly as our sovereign God has decreed it to. That's a good way to put it. That's spot on. See, Adam and Eve didn't fall in the garden because God was taking a nap. He didn't. He knew it was coming. He planned for it before the foundations of the world because he planned for Christ to die before the foundations of the world. Cain didn't kill Abel because God was busy and didn't know it was coming. The worldwide flood that God sent to wipe out everyone but Noah and his family wasn't a last-minute audible call. And the prison that John the Baptist was in wasn't because Jesus' messianic ministry was coming apart at the seams. And if all of that is the case, and it is, then do you know what else this means? This means that the hardship that you're going through, the trials, the challenges, are 100% not 95%, not 97%, not 99%, 100% God ordained hardship that he is sending for our good and his glory to bring about a specific purpose that is greater than what we can fathom. Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, not everybody, those who love God, all things. Does all things include trials and suffering? And hardships? better believe it does. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Difficult circumstances are tough. They're challenging. They're certainly not enjoyable. But church, we have to remember that in the midst of these challenges and these trials, we serve a sovereign God who, as one theologian put it, draws straight with crooked lines. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That's how powerful our sovereign God is. He takes even the evil and suffering of this world. He takes even Satan's greatest schemes and he bends them to his perfect purpose. That's a powerful God. And so, yes, of course it hurts, but we must remember that this pain is nothing but the rub of sandpaper in God's hands upon our souls to smooth out the rough spots. And boy, do we have some rough spots that need smoothing out, don't we? We absolutely do. Of course, it doesn't feel good. Of course, it is uncomfortable. And yet, in God's perfect plan, he uses suffering, he uses hardship to shape us and mold us to be able to love him in spite of our circumstances. And make no mistake, that is the only place where true joy, peace, and happiness can be found. Because if you're loving God for what he gives you, you're not really loving God, are you? You're loving the things God gives instead of the giver. You're loving the gifts instead of the giver. In Philippians 4, Paul writes this, For I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What was the secret Paul discovered, church? The next verse tells us, I can do all things through him, which is Christ, Who strengthens me? And just to be clear, that's not talking about getting an A on your test. That's not talking about getting the promotion or winning the big game. It's talking about what? What's the context here in Philippians chapter 4? The context is enduring pain, suffering, and hardship. And enduring it how? Enduring it while rejoicing, while being happy and content. And how is that possible? How can we face that without grumbling like the Israelites did when their situation got difficult and they're like, I'm sick of this stinking bread, right? How, is, how do we do that? Philippians 4, 4-7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. How? With thanksgiving. Let your request then be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's saying here? Look at that last part. And the peace of God... Which surpasses all understanding, that's what will guard your hearts and your mind. What Paul is saying, he's saying that when life brings hardship, and doubts arise from said hardship, there is a way to wrestle with your doubts in a way where you come out on the other side, not only surviving, but with peace, with the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. But here's the thing, you'll never have peace in the midst of hardship if you're not expecting hardship, if you don't think that you deserve it, if you don't think that it's a part of God's plan. And so you have to be expecting real hardship to be able to deal with hardship, which leads us to our second point. Doubt flares up from wrong experiences, but secondly, from wrong expectations. In verse 2, what is the message that John the Baptist sends to Jesus? We asked it before. We said we'd come to it. Well, here it is. The question is, are you the one or is it somebody else? Well, what does that mean when he says, are you the coming one? Well, that statement, the coming one, what is that? That's just the expression, are you the one who's supposed to? No, it's, it's a messianic title is what it is. And there's lots of these different Messianic titles which emphasize different aspects of who the Messiah is and what he would come to do. And we've already looked at some of these. We looked at the Son of David. We looked at the Son of Man as they popped up throughout the book of Matthew. But this title, the coming one, this shows up throughout the Bible in several places. For example, speaking of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. And so this messianic title, the coming one, means something. And it's something that John has already spoken of back in Matthew chapter 3. He uses the title back there for Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. Check this out. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, being Christ, the Messiah, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. For he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John asked Jesus now in verse two, are you really the coming one? The one that I say back here, the one who is to come, the coming one, are you really that one or are we supposed to look for somebody else? Now think with me, if you were here back when we looked Earlier in Matthew, and we look briefly at Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, if you remember that, then you also remember that during this time, everybody was on a knife's edge waiting for the Messiah to appear because it was prophesied down to nearly the exact day when Messiah would arrive in his triumphal entry. And we see that in Daniel's 70 weeks. And so these people were on the lookout for him. They were expecting him. However... Though they were on the lookout for him, they had one teensy little problem. And what was that? They had wrong expectations. They did. In verse 2, it says that John had heard about the works of Christ. He had heard about them. And this is what triggers his doubt, him being in prison plus hearing about the works of Christ. And so he sent his disciples to Jesus to figure out what was going on. What's the deal here, is what he's wondering. And the reason he needed to figure out what was going on is because why Jesus wasn't meeting his expectations of who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do. Not at all. What did John expect? He expect exactly what he prophesied here of, but he focused on one part of it, about the Messiah coming who would baptize the world in fire and in judgment. John expected a conquering king, not a suffering servant. And so he expected someone who would then gather all the strong people of Israel around him, amass his mighty army, throw off Rome, and rule the world and the nations with an iron fist. Psalm 2 kind of stuff. That's what he expected. But is that what Jesus did? No. In fact, he did the opposite of that, didn't he? For not only did Jesus do the opposite of that, he gathered the nobodies. He gathered the powerless. He gathered the poor and the simple and the weak. He gathered sinners, not saints, to be his followers. Saint, sinners like Matthew, the worst of the absolute worst, he gathered. And why? Because before he would come as a conquering king, he first had to come as a suffering, meek and mild servant. And he did this for a reason. He did this because this was the only way to spare us, his chosen people, from the baptism of fire, which was prophesied here in Matthew chapter 3. And instead, because he did this, We can receive that baptism of the Spirit that it talks about there, which is the new birth, which leads to ultimate and final one-day salvation from that baptism of fire that we looked at so long ago in Matthew 3. This was the only way. This was the only way possible. And so when John asked Jesus, what are you doing? This doesn't seem to be a part of the plan. Jesus responds to him, yes, it is, John. This this absolutely is a part of the plan. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. It's kind of amazing, because if I was, you know, if they are just making this whole story up, wouldn't you think that Jesus would respond and be like, how dare you question me? You worthless peasant doesn't do that though, does he? No he doesn't. What's amazing here is that Jesus responds to John's doubt, and we see in Luke actually that it appears that he just does a whole bunch of miracles right there on the fly in regards to this, that the, and, you know the way he just mentioned it, he's like, here, these are for John, take them to him. Let him know what you just saw. That's remarkable. See, all throughout the Bible you'll find that whenever somebody brings their doubt to God, you find that God seems to be very quite understanding about it. Right? He doesn't just smite them on the spot. He doesn't blast them for doubt. And so here Jesus responds, and he responds by telling John that he's got wrong expectations. He's expecting the wrong thing. He's ignoring the other half of the Messianic prophecies. Because as we've talked about before, these these Messianic prophecies, they come to us in the Old Testament often all at once. The suffering servant mixed with the conquering king. It doesn't really divide it out. Like we see it now in hindsight looking back 2,000 years. And so John's focusing on the ones that he likes. And that can be extremely dangerous, isn't it? If we take God's word and we cherry pick the things out of it, that fit with what my heart wants. That's a very dangerous thing. What do the other prophecies of Messiah say? Let's look at a few of these. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And here's Jesus beginning the first fruits of that with raising the dead. Isaiah 35, five through six. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The eyes of the blind are open. The ears of the deaf are opened. They can hear again. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open to the prisons to all those who are bound. Doesn't all that sound a lot like what Jesus answers John in verses 4 and 5 in your Bibles in front of you? Don't you, you see that? Very similar. Jesus is saying, John, I'm doing all this. You have wrong expectations. You're not looking at the big picture here. And so Jesus is saying, John, look, I'm actually doing exactly what Messiah was prophesied to do. And in chapters 8 and 9, if you were with us, you remember how we went through those miracles. We saw specific examples of how Jesus cleansed lepers. And we looked even how that cleansing of the lepers goes back to one of the religious codes of how they were supposed to deal with a leper when they were cleansed. They were supposed to send them to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders were supposed to verify it. And so at the time of Jesus, the religious leaders were actually supposed to verify the cleansing of lepers as a sign that Messiah had come. And they didn't do it, did they? They said, shut up and get out of here. Who, who healed you? Jesus of Nazareth. Get, get lost. Jesus is saying that he is the one that the Old Testament messianic prophecies spoke of. And here's the proof. And he shows it to them. And so, church, we have to have right expectations when it comes to Christ. And so the question is, how do we know if we have the right expectations or the wrong ones? God's word not your feelings, sorry, not whispers in the night, sorry, it's God's word by which you know whether or not you have the right godly expectations or wrong fleshly and worldly expectations. That's what, was John, that's what John's problem was. He was being influenced by his cultural expectations of God because as we talked about a minute ago, their whole expectation was on the conquering king. That's who it was. They ignored the suffering servant part of these prophecies. Yeah, part it was true, but that's the way Satan works. Truth with lie, isn't it? Of course it is. And so we can't just cling on to partial truths. We can't just cherry pick the things we like. We take all of God's word as authoritative and we base our expectations upon it and it alone. Here's the thing about that. When we do that, that will allow us to face difficult circumstances head on, won't it? See, so many people, so many churches, so many Christians around us, what have they embraced? The prosperity gospel. And what does the prosperity gospel tell you? Oh, God loves you and he has a perfect plan for your life. Just, just say yes to Jesus. Just sign on the dotted line here. And you, man, you're going to get so much stuff. You can't outgive God. You give him $10, he'll give you 1000 That kind of junk right from the pits of hell is what our culture largely believes, and it's not true, and it's based upon wrong expectations. Yes, God's going to bless us with his infinite riches, but not right now. That's to come. That's in the new life that we will live. If you don't have right expectations, it will crush you. Can you imagine what kind of earth-shattering doubt you're going to experience if you're not expecting suffering and hardship when you sit down with your doctor and he tells you about that deadly diagnosis? When your loved one smashes their car into a tree and poof, they're gone. How are you going to respond if you don't expect that that's in the card deck? It's going to crush you. And destroy you if we are going to deal with our doubt we have to have right expectations because if we don't not only will difficult experiences crush us but we won't be able to then go on to address our doubt with the right treatment which is our third point doubt flares up from wrong experiences wrong expectations and finally wrong treatment What was John expecting Jesus to do? We know the answer now. He wanted the fire and brimstone that he spoke of. He wanted that baptism of fire upon all the evil sinners of this world. They deserve it. Give it to him, God, is what he thought. You know what? If John had gotten what he wanted, if Christ had come at his first coming as a conquering king instead of a suffering servant, then even John... Remember what we said about John's character? This ain't no small potatoes. This is the greatest among those born of women, right? Even then, John then would have been baptized not by the Holy Spirit, but by the fire of Christ's judgment. And that means that we too also would have as well. Not one of us would have stood on the day of judgment. See, the right treatment for our doubt isn't moralism it's not more good things plus less bad things equals righteousness it's not the recipe that's not the formula christianity right it's not self-improvement what is christianity jesus tells us pretty directly in verse 6 look at verse 6 and blessed is the one who is not offended by me what does that mean to not be offended by Jesus? What's he talking about? Why on earth would anybody be offended by the Prince of Peace, right? So gentle, so lowly, so meek. doesn't make any sense. Why would people take offense to him? Why would he have to warn people not to take offense by him? Isn't it obvious? Look at Jesus' message. His message tells us that all have sinned Every single one of us, including everyone in this room, including the pastor preaching right now, has fallen desperately short from the glory of God. His message tells us that even our good works, even our best, righteous, and most moral day is filthy rags before Him. Because even the good things we do are tainted by our sinful motives. It's a bad situation we're in, is what He's telling us. It's a hopeless situation. His message tells us that we are in fact so sinful there's not a single thing we could ever do in a million lifetimes to earn his forgiveness. And His message tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, do you know what else that means? You don't get to live your life how you want. It's not your life. It's breath on loan from God. And so that means your actions are not without consequence. They matter. You will be taken to account for it. And that applies for Christians too. We have a day of judgment as well, though it is not a day of judgment that's a baptism of fire. We still we will be held accountable for the works we do in the body. We will be giving blessings and reward based upon the works that we do for Christ. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the firstborn of the dead. Make no mistake, he will one day very, very soon roll back the curtain and return in his fiery judgment where he will baptize the world with that fire, both the living and the dead. It's coming. And so the only way to avoid that baptism of fire is what? To not be offended by him. How can we not be offended by him? I'll tell you how. And there's only one way to not take offense to Christ and his gospel message of salvation by grace through faith in him alone. There's one way to not be offended by him, and it's to come to see. And hear me when I say this it's to come to see that salvation is not for the strong, salvation is not for the mighty, salvation is not for the wise. It's not. Who's it for? the weak, the poor. And this is an important purpose of why God, God's mighty salvation works this way, and it's to show his mighty power. That's the reason for it. It's to show off the greatness of his glory and his power. How did God save the Israelites from the giant Goliath? Through a little old boy named David. <clears throat> How did God save his people from the Midianite armies? Three million men and spears and shields? No, 300 men. Whittled it down to 300. How did God save his people from bondage in Egypt, who at that time was the ruler of the world, basically? Through meek and mild Moses. And here's the thing. All of those stories are foreshadowing something important. They are foreshadowing the ultimate saving of God's people. That's what it's pointing to. How? Through the weak and powerless babe who was born in Bethlehem. That's what it's pointing to. All of those are just little glimpses of the way God's salvation works. See, in Christ, the almighty, the complete and all-powerful God became weak He became meek, he became mild, he became helpless and frail. And he did so, why? Because that's how God's salvation comes. It comes through weakness for the weak, not the strong. And why? So that the weak might become strong through his mighty power, which is always displayed in a saving way through weakness. In verse 6, when Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, this is another beatitude, right? Blessed is, that's a beatitude. And we looked at those back in Matthew chapter 5, okay? And do you remember the beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5? Of course you do. Which one then does this one most clearly resemble? Well, I think it resembles the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do we become poor in spirit? By dropping our pride is the first step. Thinking, oh man, look how, how great I am. There are these chumps around me. You Drop that. You recognize and accept Jesus' message that you, even on your best day, you're filthy rags. And so we have to recognize that before God, to be poor in spirit, we have to recognize that before God, we are completely and totally bankrupt before him. There is nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made our salvation necessary. That's it. That's all I'm bringing to the table is my sin, and I'm giving it to God. And by grace through faith, as I trust in Christ, what does he give me? His robes of righteousness. It's a remarkable thing. And so being poor in spirit means to come to God, recognizing That you are totally spiritually blind. It's to recognize that you are totally spiritually lame, diseased, deaf, and yes, ultimately spiritually dead. What can a corpse do for itself? Nothing but rot. That's it. And so we must come to God and recognize that we are desperately poor and we need the good news that He preaches. What is that good news? We know it. We've talked about it here plenty of times, but I'll remind us again. It's that Christ became poor for us, that we might become rich. And how did he do that? I'd be born in Bethlehem so that he might die a cruel and brutal death upon the cross, a death that you deserved, that I deserved. In a moment, we're about to take the Lord's Supper, And in this time of communion, maybe you've been coming through a season of doubt. Maybe you've been looking at the brokenness of this world and it's causing you to tremble and doubt. Maybe you've been trying to be the tough guy and just power through it. Maybe you've been ignoring it, trying to pretend that it's not there. Or maybe you've been trying to self-treat it and think that you're spiritual enough to handle it. If so, repent of your pride. Repent of thinking that you're strong and embrace your weakness so that your strength might be found in Christ, who has infinite power and strength, who he freely gives to us. Recognize how truly weak you are apart from him. And then refuse to take offense and embrace your weakness by turning to the coming one who alone can make us a blessed one. Father, I thank you for this text. I just ask, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would kill any vestiges of pride that remain in us, that we would see ourselves as you see us. Without Christ, it's despair. It's hopelessness. But in Christ, the poor become rich, infinitely rich rich beyond our wildest imaginations, not in this life with physical money or possessions per se, but in the life to come, when we follow Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead, when we will receive new bodies, sinless bodies, bodies that are not capable of decay or suffering and hardship. In those bodies, we know that we will forever live with you as we see you face to face. Help us now as we take this time to examine our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in me, as David prayed to you, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness for the good of your people and the glory of your great name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.